The next two weeks are special because we have two guests who will be preaching. Um, first is Pastor Bijan, who is currently the pastor of Reality Church London. He's the one who took uh, my role when God called us here to Ventura. God called him and his family to London. They're going to be visiting in the States, and we're delighted to have him here so you can meet him, hear about what God is doing um, in, in London. So that's going to be amazing. We also have a dear friend named Pastor Obed. He was born in Ghana, raised in London. But I worked with him at Reality LA for, for many years as, as a pastor on staff, and God called him and his family to San Diego to plant a church. Either God or the Son is why they ended up there. Um, we trust that it's the Lord. He's also going to be with us. He pastors a church called King's Cross Church in San Diego. So we have two special guests. You don't want to miss it. It's going to be amazing. They are going to take us through and continue our short summer series through the book of Psalms. And today and over the next few weeks, we're going to deal with some issues that are really at the heart of the book of Psalms. And they are issues that are really near and dear to our own hearts. How do we deal with worry? How do we deal with distress? How do we deal with anxiety? And to do that, we're going to look at Psalm chapter 4. I'm going to read the text, we'll pray together, and we will ask the Holy Spirit to be our teacher and to guide us what it is that we must do with our worries. Psalm chapter 4, answer me when I call to you, my righteous God. Give me relief from my distress. Have mercy on me and hear my prayer. How long will you people turn my glory into shame? How long will you love delusions and seek false gods? Know that the Lord has set apart his faithful servant for himself. The Lord hears when I call to him. Tremble and do not sin. When you are on your beds, search your hearts and be silent. Offer the sacrifices of the righteous and trust in the Lord. Many, Lord, are asking, who will bring us prosperity? Let the light of your face shine on us. Fill my heart with joy when their grain and new wine abound. In peace I will lie down and sleep. For you alone, Lord, make me dwell in safety. This is God's word. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I thank you that every person in this room and watching online matters to you. And you are aware of and you are concerned with all the things that concern us. And we pray today that you would speak into our worries, speak into our cares, speak into our anxieties and our distress so that we might find rest, so that we might find shelter, so that we might find peace. I pray that you would do that for every single person through the power of your word by pointing us to Jesus Christ. And if there is anyone who does not yet know you, Lord, we pray that today they would. 
We ask these things together in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Well, it was only a matter of time before I quoted Winston Churchill, and it won't be the last, but he famously said, when I look back on all these worries, I remember the story of the old man who said on his deathbed that he had a lot of trouble in his life, most of which never happened. It's a statement that raises a question for us this morning. Why are we so worried? Now, let's be clear. There are things we should care about. There are things in the world, in this nation, and in our own lives that we should be concerned with when it is right to do so, when it is warranted. We're not called to pretend like what's happening all around us right now doesn't matter. But worry is something different altogether. Worry is care gone wrong. That's what worry is. Worry is what happens when we don't deal with our distress in the right way. And that is why it's a problem. In fact, I learned this week that the Old English meaning of the word worry means to strangle, to tear at the throat. That's violent language. No wonder the Bible tells us not to worry. I was struck when I read um, the Scottish doctor and author, A.J. Cronin. He spent years observing people in times of war and in times of peace about our worry. And he observed that we tend to distress most about that which we have least control over. And he actually sorted out, on average, what most people worry about, and he put it in percentage, and he actually puts it so bluntly, it's almost hilarious, if it weren't so true and painful. Real, legitimate concerns, 8%. Health-related worries, 12%. Petty, miscellaneous worries, 19%. Things that happened in the past that cannot be changed, 30%. Things that never happen, 40%. <laughs> now, friends, this really hits home for me. I must say this morning that I'm not naturally competitive, but I think I could outworry every single one of you in this room. I dare you to try me. I was asked, uh, before we left England, I was asked to teach at a conference on the issue of worry. And then I got worried. It's like, wait, does that mean they think I'm a worrier? <laughs> well, I am. And that either makes me the best person to teach on this or the worst person to teach on this. We'll see. I'm not worried about it. <laughs> now, in one sense, dealing with our distress and our worry has always been an issue. And yet, in another sense, our life right now, 2020, going into 2021, fuels anxiety more than ever. I mean, I just stop to think sometimes we have more access to information than ever before, and we consume it on a crazy basis. And there's therefore also more attention to your life and to the people you know through social media, 
which at times can be healthy, but it can also be really unhealthy and sometimes actually fuel our worry. Listen, let's be honest. We're all aware of what's happening in the world, in our nation, in California, in our own lives. But my questions this morning, how are we processing it? And how can we find rest within it? Will the book of Psalms help us? After all, the mighty King David, who is the author of this psalm, had a lot to worry about. In fact, this psalm, Psalm 4, was written during one of the most tragic moments in King David's life. It's actually one of the saddest stories in the Old Testament. Though David was rightly the king of Israel in the ancient world, he was betrayed by his own adult son named Absalom. Absalom formed what we would call a mutiny, and he pushed his father out of his rightful place in the throne. He betrayed his father and forced David into the wilderness. And to make matters worse, an army was sent to kill David. And lies and rumors and gossip were spread about him. And his honest cry in Psalm 4 gives us a window into his heart's turmoil. But I want you to see that it also shows us how he found real rest in the middle of it all. It's very personal, but it's actually not private. It's been written down, placed in Scripture for our instruction that it might shape how we respond in our time of need. In fact, this psalm is part of a larger set within the psalms called the prayers for help. And they are often to be read before you go to sleep, which I find very appropriate because if you're anything like me, you don't always sleep well. I do find it interesting at the end of the psalm, he says, and I lied down and I slept because the two don't always go together, do they? (laughs) Many of us lie down, but we don't sleep. But King David found a way. King David found a way to deal with his distress and find rest. How? I want you to notice three ways which serve as a model for us how we can find rest. I want you to see that David, he prays from his heart. Secondly, he preaches to his heart. And third, he trusts with his heart. And church, if we're going to find rest, we need to do the same. So what do we do with our worry, our anxieties, our care right now? Number one, you and I, we must pray from our hearts. The way to deal with our anxiety, the way to deal with our fears and our worries is not by pretending they don't exist. Some of us might think that's exactly what Christianity is about. You might think, well, that's what I you know, grew up around or that's what I'm familiar with. It's all these people who look like they're just pretending. Well, you're not gonna find that in the Bible and you're definitely not gonna find it in the book of Psalms because in the Psalms in general, but here in Psalm 4 in particular, I want you to notice that there is an emotional honesty in the cry of David. 
And it encourages us to pray from the heart. In verse one, notice the tone. Answer me when I call to you, my righteous God. Give me relief from my distress. Have mercy on me and hear my prayer. I love how he's just honestly crying out to God. God, listen to me. Pay attention. What did David do when he was faced with real danger, betrayal, displacement, uncertainty, literal people out to kill him? He's honest about his need. This could be rendered, please pay attention to me, God. I'm asking for help. And I love that because it reminds me of how my daughters plead with me. My youngest in particular, if she doesn't get my attention, she does this thing. She'll yell like several times, often for several minutes. But if I'm not paying attention, she will come up to me. She'll grab me by the jaw and redirect my face at hers. She's like, dad, 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 listen to me. Hopefully it doesn't continue into adulthood, but uh, I find it endearing right now. But in many ways, when I see that, it's often how I feel in the midst of my distress. I'm like, God, I know you're running the world right now. I know you got a lot on your plate, but if you could just pay attention to me right now, that would be amazing. Right here. I need your help. I need room, he's essentially saying. I'm in a situation of distress, and the original language of distress gives this idea that he feels spiritually claustrophobic. He's honest about his emotional state. He's also honest about his circumstances. Look at verse 2. He then turns to his accusers. How long will you people turn my glory into shame? How long will you love delusions and seek false gods? His pain that he refers to here are the lies and the vain words of his enemies who slandered his reputation. David could very easily recall the times when he was king and everything was at peace and he was able to walk freely amongst his people. Now he's in hiding. Now if he sees, as it were, someone he knows, you could just imagine them turning and going the other way and speaking about him in hushed tones. He's honest about his circumstance. He's honest about his emotional state. He's honest about the pain and the shame that came with it all. And I wonder if many of us this morning can relate. The situation you find yourself in is very difficult. Maybe you even have relationships in your life that have turned toxic. Maybe even family members, close friends, the people you thought like, wait, aren't you supposed to be in my corner? And they've turned on you, gossiped about you and slander. Maybe we can relate to David, but if so, what do we need to do well, Psalm 4, like many others, serve as a model for us. We must pray, and when we do, we must pray from the heart with emotional honesty. I highlight this because I suppose there's two errors that I often see in the church and two errors that I often see in my own life. One error is to suppress our emotions, but another error is to serve our emotions. So we need to ask this morning, which, which camp are you in or which tendency are you most likely to have? 
we need to ask this morning, like, do I suppress my emotions? Oh, what's that feeling of anxiety? Just going to bury it. Just going to push it. You stay down there. Not going to deal with it. I'm going to put on the mask when I come to church. And when people ask me how you are, you're just going to say, blessed. (laughs) That's like the stock answer to everything. Like you're just in total turmoil. Your family's falling apart. And everyone's like, hey, how are you doing this morning? Praise the Lord. Like, okay. Anything going wrong? Nope. All good. God is sovereign. Got it. Awesome. Okay. Maybe that's you. Step up or lift. Maybe that served you well. At times, you kind of steal yourself. Do we suppress our emotion? But of course, there's another error. Sometimes we serve our emotions. Some of us, we obey our feelings. For some of us, they act as our primary source for decision-making. Like, I'm angry, and therefore I should do whatever my anger leads me to do right now because that's probably the best decision. Or at least I could say it was authentic. But we must understand that our emotions are not always to be obeyed. But on the other hand, we must be careful not to mistake ignoring them. So what do we do? Some of us, we suppress our emotions. Other of us are serving our emotions. What does the Bible tell us to do? We are to steward our emotions. After all, we find our ultimate example in Jesus Christ, fully God, but also fully man. And when we read about the the life of, of Jesus in the gospel accounts, we find that it is full of emotion. Books have been written on this. We notice that he was grieved over sin. He rejoiced over good. He was angered by unbelief. He was delighted by faith. He wept over death, and he had compassion for those who are in need. You read the whole Bible and you see that God often describes himself with emotional language. So why wouldn't we? God created us in his image and our emotions are a part of that. But a disclaimer is needed because unlike God, we are affected by sin. Sin, which is rebellion from God and disconnection from God, has distorted our design, including our emotions. And so, as we learned last week, emotions are really like the the gauge on the dashboard of our car. They're meant to alert our attention to something deeper. When we see that little check engine light go on, we are to look under the hood of our hearts. But we must remember that while our emotions are a gauge They should not always be our guide. We must remember this. So how do we steward our emotions? Well, we are to be honest about our situations. We're to be honest about our concerns. We're to be honest about what worries us and bring them into the presence of God through prayer. I think some of us need to hear this this morning, because if you're like me in certain moments of my life, I feel as if I can't go to God unless I've cleaned up first. It's as if in my mind, I have this wrong picture. It certainly doesn't come from the Bible that like I'm in distress and anxiety, but if I'm going to go to God in prayer, I got to like get myself all sorted together and then I can come into his presence. As if God's like, oh, you're coming to me as a mess. No, you know, like go sort yourself out, then come to me and then I'll deal with you. 
But when I am reminded of Scripture, we see a different picture. We're to come to God like children. I love that because how do children come to their parents? Messy. Right? When, when my kids come to me and they're just like weeping over something, they're troubled, they've gotten hurt, or there's distress in their life, and they're coming to me in their tears, I don't just say, hey, go clean yourself up. Go brush your hair, wipe away those tears, and in 10 minutes you can come back to me and talk to dad. Sadly, that might have been the case for some of us. But it is not the case with God. He says, bring your mess. Come to me. Those who are burdened and heavy laden, come to me. Come like a child. God does not ask you this morning to get your interior life all sorted out before you come to him. And the Psalms show us that. David came with the full weight of his emotion and he brought it into the presence of God. We are encouraged to pray from the heart. Be honest, be emotionally honest this morning with God, friend, with what is distressing you, with what is causing you worry, with what is causing you anxiety. But that is not the only step. And that's not the only way that we find rest. First, we must pray from the heart, but secondly, and these two go together, you need to preach to your heart. This is so key. David knows that it's not enough simply to express from his heart. Nor does he believe, as many do today, that how his heart is currently handling things is automatically correct. See, oftentimes we, in our modern age, we assume that whatever we're feeling in our heart is the authority on all matters of life and faith. As, as if the heart were our ultimate guide. Have you noticed, I've noticed recently that like the basic plot line of every movie is follow your heart. I like watch movies with my kids. It could be a war movie. It's like a fantasy. It's a musical. And there's always this, this moment where they're like, oh no, the, the, the protagonist needs to make a decision. And there's this like penny drop moment. What should I do? Follow your heart. And everyone in the cinema is like, What should I do in my moment of distress? What does your heart tell you? <laughs> and we're like, hmm. As a pastor, I get this all the time. God knows my heart. I'm like, oh yeah. And usually it's often said as, as a reason for making a terrible decision, at least in my experience. Hey, I'm gonna cheat on my spouse. I'm like, yeah, that's a sin. They're like, God knows my heart. I'm like, yeah, your heart is deceitfully wicked above all else. Who can know it? <laughs> yes, God knows our heart. Yes, we wanna be emotionally honest. But our emotions, though they might be a gauge, they are not our guide. The word of God is our guide. We need truth. In verse three, David begins to preach to his heart as well as the hearts of others. He turns now having expressed his heart and submitted his distress to God, he starts to preach in verse three. Know that the Lord has set apart his faithful servant for himself. The Lord hears when I call to him. Notice David preaches to his heart the truth about God and the truth about himself. First, he's reminding himself and others who are listening that the power of prayer is not found in the one praying, it's found in the one we're praying to. See, many of us, we think prayer is like a 
performance that we put in and depending on how well it goes, God will then answer our prayer. As if today, if you're like, ooh, I'm gonna use this like epic language, I'm gonna quote at least eight and a half verses and God's like, wow. Okay, you know, what, what's the answer meter Like, oh, he got a seven this morning. Well, I'll give him his request, you know. And then maybe somebody else doesn't pray as eloquently and God's like, yeah, it's kind of an amateur prayer. You know, like come back when you're really ready to pray. But friends, the power of prayer is not found in the one praying. It's found in the one that we are praying to. So yes, we express from our hearts this, this place of emotional honesty, but we preach to our hearts. We remind ourselves, who am I praying to? I'm praying to the Lord. He doesn't just use the abstract word God. He says the Lord. He is the one who is sovereign. And he has a purpose for my life. And he is the one who directs my life. I am a servant of his. And because of who he is, I can find confidence that he hears my prayer. He's reminding himself. He's preaching to himself. See, all the voices in his heart and in his head were all the voices of his accuser. But in that moment, he's not only expressing his heart. Hey, all these people are talking trash about me and everybody's trying to kill me, my translation of Psalm 4. But in that moment, he says, wait a minute. As I preach truth to my heart, my accusers are not the authority. God is the authority. My circumstances do not determine my purpose. God does. I need to preach to my heart because when I look at my accusers and my problems in light of who God is, it begins to lessen their impact. We need to preach to our hearts. Even when you're going to bed at night, we need to, we express our worries. God, I'm stressed about this. I'm stressed about the money, the kids, what's going on with my business, what's going on in the nation. But then we got to preach to our hearts. I love that David does that. He does it all the time through the Psalms. He's like, why are you downcast, soul? I love that he refers to his soul in like, you know, third person, like, oh, soul. Try this at night, you know. Don't worry about your spouse. You're like, oh, soul, why are you downcast? I'm like, oh, you all right, honey? Yeah, yeah, I'm just preaching to my heart. Like, oh, good. That's what we learned about on Sunday. He's reminding himself of who God is. But he also needs to be reminded of who we are. We find in verse four, a verse that contains instructions, protective measures, if you will, making sure that in the midst of our distress, we do not become like the very people who brought us to our trial in the first place. He examines his heart. Verse four, tremble and do not sin. When you are on your beds, search your hearts and be silent. Of course, it is very easy in the middle of our trial to be so focused on our suffering or on our enemies that we do not realize what's happening in our own hearts. See the balance here? We need to pray from the heart and we need to preach to our hearts. We need to express from our hearts, but we also need to examine our hearts. How do we do that? With the truth. With the truth of God's word. And while it is good to be emotionally honest, I must confess that I'm also prone to error. I must confess that I may not be thinking rightly about this situation, or maybe my care has become inordinate and unhealthy about this particular thing. And if you're like me, you tend to obsess over something and you turn it over and over and over again in your mind. That's what worry does. It's like gnawing. 
Which is interesting because why do we worry so much? Jesus said, who by worrying can add one inch to their stature? Like what good does it do? It's actually like an enemy of the soul, worry is. And yet we do it all the time. But we don't feel good about it, right? How many of us, we, we spend a weekend, we spend a lot of it worrying and then somebody asks you, hey, how was your weekend? I was like, oh, it was great. What'd you do? Oh, I worried all weekend. <laughs> it was awesome. Can't wait to do it again next. Oh, wait, I'm doing it right now. Yep, worry is so fun. Like nobody. And there may be times when we're giving our own hearts, our own interpretation of matters too much weight. We need to come to the word of God. We need to preach to our heart. This is who God is. And in light of who God is, I need to examine my own heart. If you want to find rest, preach the truth of God's word to your heart and confess any sin he reveals. I love this psalm because in his confession, we see emotional honesty and biblical integrity together. So he examines himself, verse four. The word tremble means to be provoked or to be angry. So there's an honest emotion there. But he also gives a warning. Be angry and do not sin. There's a familiar command by the Apostle Paul in the book of Ephesians, which shows us that there is a right kind of anger, which is actually rooted in love, a righteous anger, the kind of anger that God expresses over injustice and unrighteousness. But there's a warning there for us. Be angry and do not sin. Because oftentimes we sin when we are angry. Some of us are just caring right now like a low-level anger over our circumstances because things are not going the way that they, we thought. And if we're honest, some of us are just angry because we've lost control. And maybe this year has just magnified that. But as I was reminded recently, suffering and adversity doesn't make you lose control. It reminds you that you were never in control in the first place. But oftentimes that loss of control causes us to be angry. David is calling us to take an honest look at how we are responding to our worries and our troubles. And he says practically, do it before the end of the day. Because we all know that if you don't, it leaks. And it leaks into the next day. And it leaks into your relationships. And it leaks into your workplace. And it links into all these other parts of your lives. We need to pray from our hearts. There needs to be an emotional honesty with God about what's really going on. And we need to bring that into his presence like a child. But we also need to preach to our hearts. We need to rehearse the truth to our hearts about who God is and who we are. Because if you don't, you will not see your need for God and you will very quickly become like the same people who have hurt you. So this truth, preaching the truth to our hearts, it leads us to confession. That's what David's inviting us to do. Preach to your heart. What is there in my heart that I need to confess? I need to examine in light of God's word. Where is it that I need to be reminded about who God is? We need to preach to our hearts and confess our sin. And far from defeating us, confession actually protects us. Preaching God's word to your heart, remembering who you are praying to, 
and confessing what it is that he wants to remove is like taking spiritual medicine before you go to bed at night. So friends, I want us to see that he prays from the heart, but he also preaches to the heart. He expresses his heart, but he also examines his heart, and we need both. I suppose religious people tend to be those who ignore the heart. They, they know the truth, they're hot on the truth, but they're ignoring the application of the truth to their own hearts. There's not an, an honesty there about what's actually going on in their hearts concerning God, concerning their relationships, concerning what is going on around. They're just kind of suppressing all that is happening inside. And I wonder if some of you are there today. No, I just, I just bury it, I just push it away, I suppress it, I don't wanna even talk about what's going on in my heart. And you might know the word well. You might even have memorized scripture. You're like, I know that, I know Psalm 4 in Hebrew. I'm like, great, what's going on in your heart? Nothing. Okay. Friends, God wants to deal with what's going on in our hearts. In fact, those who know the truth would do well to come back to Psalms because it might make you blush. David is radically honest. I mean, there are Psalms in there. When, when I was a new Christian, I first read Psalms. I was like, ooh, can you say that? <laughs> David's like, God, where are you? You're not there for me. I'm like, oh gosh, I feel uncomfortable. And then I noticed at the top, it's like, and this Psalm should be read in church. And I was like, oh, wow. Religious people tend to ignore the heart. But I suppose modern people tend to ignore the truth. We've given our own emotions, our own feelings, our own interpretations, the utmost weight of authority. And we serve our natural instinctive reactions as if they were our guide. If that's you, the Psalms might make you blush as well. Because even though the religious person might be surprised by the emotional honesty, a modern person is surprised by the truth because David, after saying, God, where are you? And being radically honest from his heart, he also says, but God, you are sovereign. I repent. I'm your servant. I'm gonna trust in you. And modern people are like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Lord, servant, what? We need to pray from the heart and we need to preach to the heart. But there's one more step to finding rest. We need to trust with your heart. It's one thing to know the truth. It's another thing to trust the truth. Some of us, we know the truth. You've been Christians for years. You, you know the verses. They're like on your coffee cup. They're even in your like Instagram bio. Maybe you have Psalm 4 in your Instagram bio. It's like, Tim Chaddock, Psalm 4. I'm like, Awesome. But are you trusting in what you read in Psalm 4? And it is here that David declares the importance of making the decision to roll the responsibility for governing his life away from himself and onto the Lord. And he says in verse 5, offer the sacrifices of the righteous and trust in the Lord. We can know the truth. Or are we trusting in it? Are we relying upon it? Like, I know the verses, but am I actually 
relationally trusting God? Am I actually, as I go to sleep at night and I'm freaking out and worried about all these things, am I actually saying, God, I trust you to deal with it and therefore I'm gonna go to sleep right now? See, some of us, we know the truth, but we have trust issues. It's kind of like driving with my wife. Now, my wife is an amazing driver. In fact, to my recollection, she's never gotten a ticket. So why is it that when I'm in the driving seat, I'm like, oh, oh yeah. you just got to, yeah, just, no. If we want to beat Google Maps, we got to like add three miles more to the speed limit, but not two more. because oh you, oh, you turned right. Oh, wow, that's interesting. Like, honestly, pray for my wife. Pray for me. I don't know. Pray for both of us. Like, it's a thing. I'm like, she's an excellent driver. I'm like, oh, I just want to, no, why'd you go? No, because what you need to do is you need to turn right. You know, three rights make a left. Like, you kind of do that when it's a one-way street. There's like a thing. I mean, I know, but it's fine. You're good. You're good. You're good. Oh, if you just turn left. Honestly, so many of us are like that with the Lord. Like, he's the Lord. He's righteous. He's been around for much longer than us, called eternity. And he's never been unfaithful to a single human in history, and we're like, I, oh, God, you went right. Wow, that's interesting. Oh, you wanted to do that for my sanctification? That's interesting, because I would have said, you know what, just let me, let me, I got it, I got it, Lord. I've got it. But David is saying, I, I know what's going on in my heart. I know the truth, but there comes a moment where you have to make a choice and say, God, it's yours. I trust you. Will you say that this morning? Will you say that tonight? as you get ready to go to bed with whatever situation ails you. It requires us admitting this morning of myself, I can't deal with my worries, I can't deal with my fears, I can't deal with my anxieties, I can't deal with my distress. But now you might say, well, how can I trust that good will come if I trust in God? Well, it's a great question because all of David's friends were asking it in verse six. Many, Lord, are asking, who will bring us prosperity? You might be saying this morning, what good will it do to trust God with my heart? Well, let's ask David. Let's ask what good it did for him. And while there are many ways that God meets us when we trust him, in our worried state of mind, David reminds us of three. What are the benefits of trusting God with what worries you right now? First, God gives you the only approval that matters. He says in verse six, let the light of your face shine upon us. In the midst about the tormenting gossip and the rumors and the slander and the shame that David was experiencing from the people around him, how does he turn a corner? God assures him of his favor and friend, he does the same for you. See, for many of us, the words we hear the lies, the slander, they hurt so deeply because we often look to those people and their opinions for our sense of identity. And so when their opinion of us is high, we're doing well. If their opinion of us is low, we're not doing well. But David is able to experience rest because he has the approval of God. He says, God, let your face shine on me. Let your favor shine on me because in the end, his approval is the only opinion that matters. 
And friend, when you know that, when you know that you are loved by God, adopted by God, accepted by God, empowered by God, approved by God, it changes everything about how you face rejection in this world. So today, trust that God's approval is what your heart needs. Secondly, what good will it do if I trust God with my worries? Listen, God gives you a joy that success can never give and failure can never take away. He says in verse seven, fill my heart with joy when their grain and new wine abound. What's he saying? What's he talking about with the grain and the new wine abound? It's a picture of other people who are working hard in the field. And when they do, when the harvest actually comes and they make the money and the harvest comes in, they might find some of their joy, which is true for most people in this world. For many, their joy comes when their work pays off. The problem is it's temporary. It is unpredictable and it will never ultimately last. So David, in contrast, he's saying, God, fill me with a joy that supersedes what a worker in this world could ever experience. And so in verse seven, a contrast is made. A contrast is made between what you can achieve through work or what you receive as a gift. And let me tell you this, the joy you need is not achieved, it is received. The joy that you need right now is not based on what you can achieve, how well you're performing, how well work is going, how well your marriage is going. The joy that you need is not gonna come from what you can achieve. It is received as a gift. It is the joy of being with God. See, one of the reasons we're, we live in worry is because we're finding joy in what we can achieve. And when we fail, we are just done with. The problem is, is if you, even if you get some joy from all of your efforts and your success, you will lose it when you fail. It's why many of us are so up and down. It's like what happens when you support a sports team, like I've made the horrible decision of doing, attaching my heart. So when they're doing well, everything's great. And when they lose like they did on Friday, it's just terrible. I'm just like, oh, why did I ever do this? Because my joy is based on the performance of another. But friends, with God, it's a joy that success can never give you. And it's a joy that failure can never take from you. It's something that cannot be manufactured. It is literally a gift of God. David has favor. He has joy. And third, what you can have too when you trust him. And you need to know that God gives you a security that is greater than your circumstances. And with that, in verse eight, he says, in peace I will lie down and sleep, because we don't always sleep when we lie down, for you alone, Lord, make me dwell in safety. Here David describes a security beyond his circumstances. And I want you to notice that David doesn't rest because his enemies have stopped. He doesn't find rest because his circumstances have changed. He is able to rest because he knows that if his trust is in the Lord, then he is in the safest place in the world. And you are too. And if God is truly the source of your security, if he is truly the source of my security, then I am just as protected in my time of trouble as I ever was in my time of blessing. And what is that believer's security? What kind of security do we have in God? 
To quote a famous old sermon from Jonathan Edwards, three points. The bad things will be worked for good. The good things that God give you will never be taken away. And the best is yet to come. That's the believer's security. That's why you have security. The bad things, the Bible tells us, even the worst things will ultimately work for good, even if you can't see it now. The good things that he has given you, the power and presence of his Holy Spirit can never be taken from you and the best is yet to come. One day you will be with him in glory and you will be transformed and there will be no more pain, no more sorrow, no more suffering, no more death, no more tears because he will wipe them all away in his presence. The good you have will never be taken from you ultimately. The bad things will be worked for good and the best is yet to come. But how can I know that this is for me? And how can you know that this is for you? His favor, his joy, his security is guaranteed to everyone who believes in Jesus. Because Jesus fulfills the promise of the Psalms. And the way that Jesus does it serves as a lesson and a model for us. When the Son of God came into our world, he came to live perfectly on our behalf, knowing that he was always going to go die a horrible death on the cross to make a payment for the sin that we deserve. And as he was approaching that hour, as the cross was looming, he enters the Garden of Gethsemane. And when he prays, he's honest about the full weight of distress in Matthew 26. He says to the disciples, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell on his face to the ground and prayed, my father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. What do we see perfectly in Jesus? He expresses and then he surrenders. He says, if there be any way, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. He expresses and then he surrenders with perfect honesty and integrity, with tears and with truth. Jesus went all the way to the cross to save us from the one thing we should ultimately fear, the judgment of God against our sin. And on that day that we call good, he took our place. And on that day, he faced the darkness of rejection so that we could experience the light of God's favor. He was filled with sorrow over sin so that we could be filled with the gift of joy. And he faced the destruction of judgment so that you and I could have everlasting security. Friends, all these promises are true for you through Jesus Christ, through the gospel. And so complete and powerful is the gospel of Jesus that later on the Apostle Paul could literally rattle through a list of worst case scenarios and distresses in life and not be shaken. He says in Romans 8, Who's going to bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who is that who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus has died. More than that, he was raised to life and he's at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. So what shall separate us from the love of God in Christ? 
shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword or 2020 or 2021. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. That's good news, amen? That's what you gotta preach to your heart every night. And when you know that, you can go to sleep. So right now, friend, ask God to shine a light on what is really exhausting you in your heart. This morning, the Holy Spirit invites us to name it and to bring it into his presence, to trust him and to find rest. Maybe you're concerned about your reputation. His acceptance in Jesus gives you rest. Maybe you're angry this morning because you've lost control. God's sovereignty gives you rest. Maybe you're burdened by a guilty conscience. His forgiveness through the cross gives you rest. Maybe you're worried about being lonely. His Holy Spirit is with you right now, the comforter. Maybe you're distressed by opposition. His protection gives you rest. This morning, friends, pray from your heart. Preach to your heart and trust with your heart in the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's how we're going to find rest. Let's pray together that that would be so for us. Father, I pray for those who do not yet know you. I pray that right now, whether they're joining us online or they're here in this room, that they would say from their seat, Jesus, save me. Save me from my sins. You are God, I am not. I put my trust in what you have done for me through Jesus. I pray that right now they would pray that. Accept your gift of salvation and know that they are forgiven. And Father, I pray for us as a church that we would bring into the light what is exhausting us that we'd be honest with you about what's worrying us, causing us anxiety, and that we'd bring it into the light, that we would bring it to you, and that your truth would comfort us and convict us, and that we would say today, right now as we worship, I trust you. May you do that in us, in Jesus' name, amen.